I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Okay. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And today we'll be talking about the film version of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. We're going to be mixing things up a bit for our film episodes, so they're going to take a slightly different format from our novel episodes. To start, to give you a little context, I'm going to read you the one word, one word, one sentence description of uh, of this movie called from IMDb. Here it goes. Rescued from the outrageous neglect of his aunt and uncle, a young boy with a great destiny proves his worth while attending Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. So beautiful. So accurate, too. Very accurate. He for sure proves his worth. That's definitely what I think the theme of this movie is. The takeaway. So, let's start things off with our first film segment, Professor Time with Marcel! According to Linda Hutchin, in her book, A Theory of Adaptation, which is now in its second edition, adaptation is, quote, an extended, deliberate, announced revisitation of a particular work of art. And there are two ways to think about adaptation. One is to think of it as a product. So in that case, it's an announced and extensive transposition of a particular work or works. This, quote, transcoding, end quote, can involve a shift in medium. So for example, going from a poem to a film, or in our case, going from a novel to a film, or genre, which would be moving from, say, an epic to a novel, um, or a change of frame and therefore context, so telling the same story from a different point of view. This is something that we also see in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first movie, because it goes from being uh, 
narrated from Harry Potter's perspective to being sort of an omniscient third person narrator. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And then the second way that we can think about adaptation is as a process. Uh, So that is, as a process of creation, the act of adaptation always involves both reinterpretation and then recreation. So what we're going to start with today is talking about the differences between the novel and the film. Essentially, we're going to talk about how this this adaptation plays out um, between you know, what we just read and discussed as the first novel, and then what we watched in the first film. We watched the movie together for the first time right before we recorded the first episode. Um, And so the book was very, very fresh in my mind when I watched the movie. And it was definitely the first time I had watched the movie since the movie came out in theater. So that was pretty exciting. And the first thing that really struck me was how differently Harry's powers are represented. Um, They make something really different of what Harry's powers look like pre-Hogwarts. And there's a couple of ways that that really manifests. The first is that in the novel, Harry doesn't understand his powers and genuinely seems to have no idea that anything is happening. The scene where this really struck me is uh, the scene at the zoo, right? Where we Mm -hmm. see things going wrong or right, depending on your perspective, with the snake. Can you hear me? I've never talked to a snake before. In the book, Harry really seems to have no idea that he is the person responsible for this. And he's kind of horrified, right, with mm-hmm. what's happened. He certainly assumes no responsibility for it. Oh, Whereas no. in the film, while we still know at this point Harry doesn't understand magic, um, he takes this sort of, like, childish glee in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really different reaction than, than what we see in the book. In the book, the snake gets out and, you know, Dudley is screaming and upset. But in the movie version, Harry, willingly or no, um, actually traps Dudley behind the screen or behind the, the glass that the snake had been enclosed in. It seems more malevolent. It does, right? One is just letting the snake free by accident, which is almost sort of an act of kindness. And the fact that it disturbs Dudley is just a side effect of Dudley being, you know, ignorant and foolish and Mm -hmm. intolerant of things that are different from him. Whereas to have him actually trapped inside the cage behind glass, that's genuinely creepy, even if there's no snake in there anymore. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's bullying. It's hard to picture Harry as the bully because he's such, he's definitely the the smaller and the weaker one in that relationship. But there is, there is this kind of subtext for magic in the movie where Harry is kind of able to use magic or he learns that magic is a tool that he can use to bully Dudley. And a really good example of that is when Hagrid um, zaps a pigtail onto Dudley for eating Harry's birthday cake a little bit later. And that sort of, it feels more like a just punishment in the book because Dudley is so mean and nasty. But in the movie, it feels more like Hagrid is picking on Dudley because he's fat and greedy, not because he's actually a mean bully. Yeah, the way that it's framed in the movie is this fat shaming because Dudley is eating the cake. And maybe Dudley's hungry. I mean, everyone deserves cake. Everyone should be allowed to have a little bit of cake. Yeah. Nobody should be shamed for enjoying cake, is what I'm saying. I wish I was eating cake right now. So the next place where I really see this playing out, um, that sort of 
increased like malevolence in Harry's magic is um in the wand shop. So this really, really mm. struck me. As in the book, as we watch Harry's sort of transition from the muggle world into the wizarding world, he is overwhelmed by this anxiety that uh, that he has been mistaken, mm-hmm. right? That it's a sort of mistaken identity situation. I mean, it's imposter syndrome. Harry mm-hmm. suffers from imposter syndrome, um, which we all do. And so we can all empathize with not it. Not Hermione Granger. Hermione Granger does not experience imposter I th- syndrome. I think you've just hit on why she is my fucking hero. <laughs> At no yeah. point is Hermione Granger ever unaware of how badass she is. Hashtag Granger Danger. So in the book, in the wand shop, when he waves wands that are not the right fit for him, they do nothing. Give it away. They they break things. Like they don't. That's crashes. in the movie. Oh, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the book, they do nothing. In the book, a wand that doesn't work for you is just. It just has no effect at all. And so Harry's standing there waving these wands, feeling like a fool mm-hmm. um, and overcome by anxiety that they're wrong, that mm-hmm. he doesn't have any magic at all and that there will be no wand that's right for him. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you as a reader, having just been introduced into this world, can sort of share in that anxiety because you don't have any way of knowing at that point. Oh, like yeah. Harry, you have no way of knowing that this is real. Yeah. Um, but in the movie... The second Harry has a wand in his hand, his magic is this chaotic, destructive force Mm -hmm. that it might not be controlled yet by the right instrument, but it's undeniably present. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I can't remember if in the book Hagrid says this or not, but when Hagrid tells Harry that he's a wizard, Hagrid says, and a thumping good one, I'd bet. And I just, I can't. Whether that's in the book or not, I just can't help but wonder where that assumption comes from. Like, I don't... There doesn't seem to be anything in particular about Jane's and Lily Potter that, like, made them such exceptional wizards. I thought that what was exceptional exceptional about them was the fact that they were good. Like, that they were just good wizards who worked for good. So it's just really surprising to me. But I guess maybe it's just because... Is it just because Harry survived Voldemort's attack? Like, is that just supposed to be the... I think it's supposed to be because his mother and father were powerful. But I don't remember this well enough. So let's make a note, which we will both immediately forget and then never reference again, Mm -hmm. to try to see if there are references to his parents being particularly powerful in the future. Okay. So the third way that we see this really sort of taking shape in the movie, um, and the thing that I think struck both of us when we were watching it um, is the final scene, Harry's face-off with Quirrell. In the book, the way that Harry is saved in that scene by magic is incredibly passive. It has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with his own agency. It has nothing to do with his own power. And in that way, it's really similar to the way that he was performing magic at the beginning, Mm -hmm. right? Performing magic without knowing it because it wasn't anything that he knew how to do or could control or even realized he was doing, Mm -hmm. right? In the book, Quirrell touches him and is burned because his skin is protected by this this really passive sort of spell laid on it by his mother's love. Mm-hmm. In the film, he has to be the aggressor. He has yeah. to reach out and touch Quirrell. When Quirrell touches him, nothing happens. Yeah, Quirrell is strangling him and nothing is happening. And then Harry reaches out and puts his hand on Quirrell's hand, which is strangling him. And all of a sudden, Quirrell gets burned. Yeah. And so it has to be Harry's sort of ability to reach out and take control of the situation to Mm -hmm. step into the position of the aggressor that lets that magic 
take effect. And that really changes that scene. Yeah, yeah. And the way that they have Dumbledore explaining it to Harry is different, too. Because in the book, Dumbledore says, do you know why Quirrell couldn't touch you? But in the movie, Dumbledore says, do you know why Quirrell couldn't stand to have you touch him? There's a very clear difference. And it's, to be honest, it's not a difference that makes any sense if we think about the way that, like, people's bodies function. Like, why is it that... Harry's neck wouldn't contain the same power. Yeah, um, like, why would a love spell from his mother only impact his palms? Yeah, it's it's nonsense. <laughs> that turns him into this sort of masculinist model of heroics mm-hmm. that I think the book resisted in really interesting ways. Yeah, so as a character, right from the beginning, he's he is very different. Um, you know, if we're thinking of adaptation both in terms of, you know, the series of decisions that go into the different form the film makes and um, in terms of the final product, then it's a different story, mm-hmm. right? And I have to wonder if it's a different story because it's a different medium. Yeah, yeah, that could very well be. I mean, if we're thinking about the movie as being a kind of third-person narration where we're seeing what is happening, but we're not seeing it through any particular person's eyes... It, I guess, makes sense that maybe Harry comes across as more powerful, whereas in the book, when it's when we're reading from Harry's perspective, it makes more sense that we're encountering his self-doubt and imposter syndrome and uncertainty. Um, and so I guess it would be harder for the movie to portray that, or maybe it just wouldn't have been as interesting, or maybe it's hard to get children to demonstrate self-doubt. I mean, this figure matches the IMDb description, right? Where he's mm-hmm. proving himself. Which is not how the novel feels to me. The novel feels to me as a sort of a child who has suffered from a lifetime of neglect finally finding a home and people who care Mm -hmm. for him, which is a very different narrative. Um, But I, I kind of, as I think about it, I kind of buy that description that it's, you know, he has to prove people doubt him Mm -hmm. and he has to prove that he's capable of a certain level of heroics. So he has to save the day. Right. Um, And that ties into the other major shift Um, that interested me. I'm sure there are many other differences. Uh, But the other one that interested me is the representation of Hermione Mm -hmm. as a character. Um, And to sort of work backwards, I think we need to start with the fact that um, during their sort of final series of tests, as they're making their way through to where the Philosopher's Stone is hidden um, and trying to catch up with Quirrell, uh, the entire scene where Hermione uses her smarts to sort out the potion riddle has mm-hmm. been um, written out entirely. And instead, as they're leaving the chess game, Hermione makes the decision to not move forward mm-hmm. and help Harry with the rest of the quest because she has to stay and take care of Ron. So boring. When I was complaining about this, so when I was live tweeting it um, a few hours ago, and uh, our tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser, uh, was there with me. He said, well, she already beat the devil's snare. And then I said very sarcastically, yeah, so all three of them are now equal and they all accomplish an equal number of tasks. But in the book, the thing that's remarkable about Hermione is that she accomplishes two tasks. She gets them through the devil's snare And then she uses her smarts again to get them through the potions. And so to have written that out is deliberately making them all equal. And they're not. We know that they're not. They're absolutely not. Um, Hermione is clearly better than the rest of them in all ways. (laughs) 
She is given some things in the movie, however, that she doesn't have in the book. For example, um, in the movie, she's the one who figures out who Nicholas Flamel is, not Harry. Mm -hmm. Um, Harry sort of accidentally remembers it via a chocolate frog card. card. Yes. Um, Whereas Hermione finds it in a book because she's been doing her freaking research. Some light reading. Some light reading. But... And I guess the other sort of big difference is, um, and we talked a lot of, in the last episode about how Hermione is sort of represented as this unlikable character at the beginning who needs to somehow earn her way into the friendship of Harry and Ron. That absolutely does not happen in the film. Oh, no. Maybe it's Emma Watson's representation of the character, or maybe it was a deliberate choice they made to make her more likable from the beginning so that... Um, viewers would identify with her right up front. Mm -hmm. Um, But she is badass from minute one, and there's nothing off-putting about her at any point. I mean, maybe if you were Ron and Harry, she might still be off-putting, but as a viewer, she's just the best. Like, her sassy attitude. Are you sure that's a real spell? Well, it's not very good, is it? It's just wonderful. It's funny, and maybe because the majority of the viewers when the first movie came out I'm totally speculating I have no evidence to back this up but the, speculate away speculate away this is where I would underline it in an essay and write speculative I'm guessing that the majority of viewers who went to see the first movie when it was in theaters had probably read the books um and so as as filmmakers they don't need to carry so closely to the book and make her unlikable and then make her redeemed. Instead, they can have her be kind of sassy and bossy. Oh, are you doing magic? Let's see them. Um, But we who know that she is going to become someone who we adore already adore her. So we're like, ha, look at her being bossy and bossing around Harry and Ron. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's that's the the service that Hermione or the the role that Hermione plays um, is the one who always knows what's going on. And you don't doubt that from minute one in the film. And that's partly that's a product of that shift in narrative perspective we were talking about, right? Mm -hmm. That this isn't about how Harry sees her. This is a supposedly objective view of Hermione and from the objective view Hermione is incredible from the first second she walks on screen um this is an aside right we're in the, we're in the miscellaneous things that come into our heads <laughs> section um this really stood up to me as suggesting a markedly different morality between the film and the novel which is that in the novel it's the forbidden forest. Mm, and in the mm. film, it's the dark forest. Oh, yeah. The forbidden forest is a name that only tells you that you're not allowed to be there. That is a name that is given to the forest for the children that says, this is a space that is off limits to you. And Hogwarts is full of spaces like this, right? Spaces mm-hmm. that are not particularly being judged as good or bad, but that are just not safe for children. Mm-hmm. And that... You know, that's part of the sort of exciting moral murkiness of the novels is that a lot of things aren't cast in tidy ways as Mm -hmm. good or evil. They're just, you're ready for them or you're not ready for them, Mm -hmm. right? There are truths that the characters are not ready for until later novels. Um, There are aspects of the world that they live in that they're not ready to know until they're older. And Mm -hmm. that's so much more like growing up is, right? That you become more aware of how gray the world is Mm -hmm. 
Whereas to call it the dark forest casts this really sort of like moral judgment on it, right? It suggests that it's a place where evil things happen. Mm -hmm. And yet in the first book, all we see in the dark forest that actually belongs there is unicorns and centaurs. (laughs) That's very true. Um, And also, if we think about the way that the term dark is associated with Voldemort as the dark lord and Africa as the dark continent and bad magic as dark magic. Yeah. Oh, it's all very racialized and troubling. Mm-hmm. Not unlike the Orientalism of Quirrell's Turban, which we should probably... Did we talk about that in the last episode? I don't think we did. But this is one of the things that I'm, I'd be interested also to sort of flag post as we go through, is Voldemort's association with uh, the quote-unquote Orient. Starting with this image of Quirrell in the turban as somebody who has traveled far and wide. Mm-hmm. Our second segment, named uh, in honor of our first episode, is called The Sorting Ceremony. And this is a segment where we discuss casting in the Harry Potter movies, how we feel about the actors they chose, and, and how they betrayed the characters that we know from the books. Why don't we start with Hermione Granger, because we've already talked a little bit about her. So we can talk about Emma Watson and her characterization of Hermione, Mm -hmm. things that we liked. Is there anything that we don't like about Emma Watson? This isn't something I don't like, but it's something I'm really glad she stops doing, which is that as a young child actor, her understanding of how you act is to over-articulate your words outrageously. (laughs) She moves her jaw so much in this movie, I was afraid she was going to dislocate it. It's so funny, though. I'm also really delighted that Daniel Radcliffe learns how to emote uh, later on. That's a good, it's a good skill that he learned as an actor. And he, he becomes quite good at it later on. But that scene at the beginning, I just can't get over it. It's the scene when Hagrid shows up to give him his letter and his birthday cake. And they're in the little island thing in the middle of the, the sea. And fucking England. <laughs> England. Am I right, ladies? And when Vernon says, we're going to put a stop to that. And... Then Hagrid says, oh, and I suppose a great muggle like you is going to stop him, Harry. Spot on Hagrid impression. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, good. (laughs) I'm Hagrid in my heart. (laughs) And then Harry says, muggle? As though, like, they're not having a fight about Harry's future. And then all of a sudden, Harry's just like, I heard a word that I don't understand. It's like, muggle? (laughs) And then Hagrid has to turn and explain what, what a muggle is. And it's just, it's it's very sweet, and he's a child, and so it's fine, and it's a kid's movie, and it's fine. He underreacts to everything. Oh, totally. Oh it's amazing. I mean, in Diagon Alley, you're like, be more excited! The scene when Hagrid is outside of Ollivander's holding Hedwig, Harry looks disturbed more than excited about the fact that he's about to get a great snowy owl. Look at that owl. It's so majestic and now it's your friend. Like it kind of looks a little bit like he's farting. Like he's got like (laughs) one of his eyes is a little bit squinty and he's he looks confused. He's overwhelmed and he's a child. Yes. It's not his fault. And he doesn't know yet that that owl's not going to peck his fucking eyes out while he sleeps. Real life owl. If somebody came up to me and was like, here is a full-sized owl that is going to live in your home now. <laughs> Hope you can take care of it. I would be horrified. <laughs> Owls are terrifying. <laughs> but he 
only read his letter that says that he can bring an owl. So he knows that yeah. they're... Okay, Marcel, I'm going to hand you a letter that says owls totally won't back out your eyes and eat your brains through the empty eyes sockets. <laughs> They're going to deliver your mail, even on Sundays. It's going to be great. It's in a letter. Look, the letter has calligraphy and green ink and shit. It's magical. Here's an owl. <laughs> Hope you can take care of it. <laughs> it's not... You're not convinced, are you? Yeah. Yeah. Not entirely. So that skepticism is, I don't know, granted. I it's, think. yeah. Fist-sized grain of salt with that yeah. one. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say... That while I recognize that eventually Rupert Grint Mm -hmm. becomes the weakest link, Mm -hmm. in the first film, I think he might be the strongest of those three children. Yeah, I think think you're right about that. And I think part of it is because... Because he's the youngest Weasley boy, he's got a lot of... Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I'm trying to avoid saying imposter syndrome again. But, like, he's got all those older siblings. Everything in these novels and movies has to be metaphorized via academic experiences. So go ahead and say imposter syndrome. So Ron also has a good deal of imposter syndrome because, you know, how can he possibly measure up to all of his older siblings who are all unique and wonderful in their own way? What can he possibly have to offer? Anyway, whatever. I don't need to go through the list. I can't remember them all. That's not true. Of course I can. Yes, Bill, you can. Charlie, Percy, Fred and George. Right? He's not brilliant. He's not athletic. He's not funny. I mean, he has all of these qualities in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. But but he has a, a series of remarkable siblings. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, for those of us unburdened by remarkable siblings, it's hard to imagine what this experience would be like. I wish that I could translate Hannah's facial expression into words, and I can't. Well, yes, I can. The word is glee. The word I, glee. Right. Listeners need to know that I have an older brother, and I just burned him so hard. Just in case you didn't know what that was. So Rupert Grint is delightful. So he really, he really does portray that kind of like, I'm not really sure what's going on. I'm just a little kid, but I like know things and I'm like kind of confident, but I have no confidence in myself as a unique individual, which is exactly his character. So he does a really solid job and I appreciate it. And he pulls off that dirt on his face at the beginning so well. Oh man. And he does a lot of double takes and I am a big fan of the double take as an Mm -hmm. acting technique. What I'm saying is double takes are great, more double takes please Mm -hmm. so that's the children at the core and i think we're being really forgiving of them at this point because we did in fact look up their ages when we were watching this and realized that they're supposed to be 11 and they are i think 10 11 and 12 Mm -hmm. i think um emma watson would have been 10 daniel radcliffe would have been 11 and rupert grimp would have been 12 when they were filming so they're all right there in that age group you have to be a monster to be like that 10 year old is over articulating. And I say <laughs> that literally what you literally, just said. <laughs> literally what I just said. I just recognize that I am a monster. Should we just mention something about Malfoy and Neville? Do you oh, think yeah. it's worth? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. For the, for the pleasure of our listeners, I'm going to read out loud to you. Um, a quote from Marcel from the last time that we watched this film together. So we've been having some conversations about wine. Yeah, yeah, we've been having some wine slash conversations about what a triumph of the underdog it is that Neville turns out so hot. (laughs) It's just beautiful because he's so oh he's so homely. He's so homely (laughs) and strange faced. 
and sad with his toad. And he's got those spectacular buck teeth with like a great big gap in it's between. It's just them. like they could not have cast oh. a more perfect object of bullying who is so harmless and so pudding face that nobody can object to the monstrosity of Malfoy for bullying him totally. and the perfect heroism of Harry for coming to his defense. Oh, yeah. Um, so then we spent like 20 minutes looking at all of those surprise Neville got really hot memes. Um, and then Marcel turned to me and said, we spent a while looking at hot pictures of Neville. Who even knows what happened? <laughs> and I can't remember now if she means who even knows what just happened to the last 20 minutes of our lives while we stared at a man who is definitely a decade younger than us. And we're like, yeah. <laughs> Or if she means who even knows what happened biologically to turn that child into that legal consenting adult. Uh, but either way. Whew, yeah. Oh my goodness. So Malfoy also perfectly cast. Oh, so good, right? So smarmy and little and like too big for his bridges. Really Aryan. Mm. Like they've written that creepy Nazi subtext in from day one by making him look like the kind of homoerotic blonde boy who would totally attend an Aryan youth camp. Oh, yeah. yeah. He has been reading Heidegger over the summer. <laughs> the only thing that Malfoy doesn't have is a Hitler youth haircut, and I kind of want to give them props for not pushing it too far. Yeah, that's fair. But that said, his hair is very quaffed. Oh, yeah. Compared to every other character, he has, like, his hair is... He's clearly using product, and he's 11. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what 11-year-old uses product? <laughs> a rich one. Yeah, mm. I know, right? I mean, the movie gives us this amazing, like, heavy-handed shorthand for how to judge characters. Mm -hmm. And it's like, look at this guy. He's blonde and also kind of effeminate. Don't you hate him? Even and you're like, yeah, wait. Why, though? I'm not wait, sure. I really shouldn't. 11 years old. So just a child. Just, just, just a, a child. The the music, too, when... Um, so it's it's irritating that they don't go in alphabetical order during the sorting ceremony, but whatever. That's that's fine. Directorial choices are directorial choices. But we get like we get some Gryffindors and it's all like ba 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 and like cheers and then we get a Hufflepuff and there's still cheers and then it's like Draco Malfoy and then Draco Malfoy sits on the stool and it's like boom boom this child is evil you even know. though he's below the age of consent. Do you have to consent to be evil? I'm just you curious. You have to consent. I'm sorry. I'm half Mennonite, so I believe very strongly <laughs> that you only you should be able to choose your moral alignment as an adult. It's sort of an Anabaptist thing. Okay. So like you don't you're not born one way or the other. They're decisions that you make as an adult, and that's in fact what you see. Spoilers. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> I think it's time for us to talk about the professors. Oh, yeah. And I would like to start by saying that I have um, the theme, the secret theme of this podcast is Hannah has ambivalence. Um, so I have some ambivalence about the casting of McGonagall. Mm -hmm. And my ambivalence is that in the books, she's not old. It's mm. absolutely not important for McGonagall to be an older woman. She is stern and she is black haired mm -hmm. um 
And I think that there's a lot of other interesting directions you could have gone with that character. And I think they could have been directions that hinted at her having a richer life Mm -hmm. behind that of simply being a teacher. Right, because in her characterization, who uh, Maggie, what's Maggie's last name? Smith. Maggie, Maggie Smith. Um, Maggie Smith, as the actor who plays her, is obviously perfect, but the implication that comes with Maggie Smith playing Minerva McGonagall is that McGonagall is a spinster. It's very, yes, she's very spinstery. And I mean, all power to spinsters. Mm-hmm. I love spinsters. I am a spinster. Me here alone in this spacious apartment with my cat. Um, <laughs> and all your books. And all my books. And your tarot cards. <laughs> and my tarot cards and my vegan cookbooks. But it forecloses on a lot of possibilities for the mm-hmm. character, right? As soon as they make her an older woman, they're dealing in a sort of particular visual vocabulary of femininity Mm -hmm. um, that says, you know, this is a woman who is childless, unmarried, you know, married to her job. Her Mm -hmm. primary relationship seems to be to Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. And Dumbledore himself is, you know, elderly, childless, unmarried. Mm -hmm. But we all know that as a man to be older and childless and unmarried, in fact, increases the image of how powerful you are, mm-hmm. right? So that it is possible for Dumbledore to be this sort of amazing figure of total autonomy and mysteriousness. And that same series of characteristics in McGonagall, I don't think, reads in the same way. No, and there's also the implication that um, only certain kinds of women can be powerful And they are never young women. Young women are never powerful. They're never in positions of authority. And if they, if young women are stern and strict, they are distinctly unlikable. But if you have an older woman who is stern and strict, but also has a soft spot, then you know that she's actually okay. And that's just a really, it's just a very stereotypical and it's a trope. In choosing to not resist that trope, um, they're just the the movies end up feeding into the same kind of dichotomy that we have, where we only look at women as being powerful in certain circumstances. Yeah, I mean, pause for a moment and imagine the Harry Potter movies with Professor McGonagall played by a black-haired Tilda Swinton. Like that's a different character, and that's every bit as faithful to the novels. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's a different choice for what you're going to build out of this character. Speaking of perfect choices for casting, Mm -hmm. Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman is perfect. I am baffled, though, by some of his um, facial... Choices. Choices. (laughs) Yeah, his facial (laughs) movements, his facial choices. There are just some things that don't make any sense. He always looks a little bit startled. And kind of shifty-eyed, like he's shifty-eyeing around and then gets startled when he sees that somebody's looking at him. It's so, it's very bizarre. Yeah. I mean, this this movie does really feel like a children's movie, right? Mm-hmm. So they want you to be reading him as a villain. So he does like comical villain-style faces. He mm-hmm. does a lot of like lurking and squinting and looming mm-hmm. and sweeping. There's a lot of gerunds associated oh, yeah. with Snape <laughs> and none of them are good. No. And his face is incomprehensible in so many scenes. I mean, that scene where he stumbles across uh, Harry and his friends um, in what Marcel rightly said is not 
even the inside. Oh, no. Like, he yells at them for being inside Hogwarts. They are literally adjacent to grass and sunshine. Yeah. There are, it's not even windows. It's just pillars between them and grass. Yeah. And he looks very suspicious about what they're doing there. Um, and then Harry says, well, you also look kind of suspicious. And then Snape looks insane. <laughs> But if you will recall my characterization of Snape as a as a figure from our last episode, Alan Rickman's crazy face is perfect because Snape is crazy. Yeah, he's bananas. He's a overreacting man-child mm-hmm. um, with a strange, undefinable erotic appeal. I feel like we have to talk about his hair because in the books, it says distinctly that his hair is like a curtain of grease. But in the movies, it always looks clean. It always looks clean and bouncy. He could be in an Herbal Essences commercial. Last time we watched it, Marcel literally says that he has the Rachel. Have you noticed? You must have noticed. Go back and rewatch the first movie. He has the Rachel. It's remarkably... I think his hair gets longer and so more sort of like... Drapey? Drapey? Yeah, that's a good word. And it rhymes with snapey. So mm-hmm. that's good. But it gets it gets more... I don't know, less Rachel Mm -hmm. in later movies, I think. But in this movie, his hair has like, not only is it not greasy, it has an unnerving amount of bounce. Yeah. (laughs) That is 100% my only problem with Alan Rickman's Snape is just his hair. If his hair was greasy, I would totally buy into it. But you're right. It's not greasy. And because it's not greasy, it's a little bit erotic. And that does change our sort of reading of him as a character. And I think that Alan Rickman is really responsible for what has become this big sort of fan culture around Snape and a huge amount of very exciting slash fiction written around Snape as a character Mm -hmm. that really is based on how sexy Alan Rickman is and how tries they may, they could not make him unsexy. Totally. And and we'll talk in the later episodes, we'll talk about Snape's big reveal and why it is that we change our minds about him. But I feel like with Alan Rickman's portrayal of Snape, that while it may still be the reveal may itself still be a surprise that shift where you go from loathing this person to adoring this person is not nearly as sharp no i think i remember in watching the early movies when i was younger and thinking that they'd really miscast him because he's too likable Mm -hmm. yeah Absolutely. I definitely remember thinking that. I definitely, while watching this movie, um, sort of had this this recognition that Alan Rickman as Snape is essentially my professorial urtext. Like, (laughs) if I can go back in time and identify the moment when I decided that being a professor is the best possible job to have, it's the scene where everybody's sitting in the dungeon waiting for potions class to start. And... Snape slams into the room, door slams open, cloak billowing, hair wafting, and he starts to talk about his class in these, like, unbelievably overinflated terms. (laughs) I can teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. I can tell you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. I, in fact, once described to the young cousin of a colleague of mine, she asked what it is that professors do, and I told her that we are shitty wizards. (laughs) I was like, well, we work in towers, and we read dusty old tomes, and we wear robes, um, but we can't do magic or anything cool. 
I mean, if you studied chemistry, you could make potions. And But isn't the imagination like transfiguration? Yeah, I'll give you that. Okay. I mean, we already decided that it was applied physics, but that too. Um, I can we also we should also talk about Dumbledore because yeah, this should. Dumbledore is only in these two movies mm-hmm. and I can't remember the actor's name. Um, old man. Gentle Dumbledore. What I have written down is white patriarchal wizard masculinity. And the reason why I wrote that down is because I'm very suspicious of white patriarchal masculinity, except insofar as it is a wizard. Because the second (laughs) that an old white authoritative man is also a wizard, I love him. Mm -hmm. I mean, case in point, this Dumbledore with his gentle beardiness... And also Gandalf. And I know everybody has already talked about how Dumbledore and Gandalf are the same character, so we don't need to go over that. Yeah. But I love them both equally and fully and passionately, and also Sir Ian McKellen should have been cast as Dumbledore. It's a I mean, I'm guessing that the only reason that he wasn't is because they were planning to make the Lord of the Rings movies, and Peter Jackson was like, don't you fucking dare. Don't you, Ian, one wizard at a time. Sir Ian McKellen should play every wizard. Yeah. That should be a law. Think of how interesting the Lord of the Rings movies would have been if he had played both Sauron and Gandalf. Oh my god, that would have been so good. And then in the Hobbit movies, if he played Radagast and Sauron and yeah. Gandalf. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember when uh, the third movie came out and it was a different Dumbledore. I mean, I'd known to expect a different one because I'd heard the news of his death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember not liking him, the new one, at all. Yeah. I remember feeling really... Because he's much more sort of aggressive and outspoken and loud. And this early Dumbledore, um, whose name neither of us will ever look up, um, is so gentle and very whispery. Mm -hmm. He's a whispery old man. I like whispery old men when they're wizards. Mm -hmm. I That's... You could say that about all aspects of the patriarchy. Yeah. as, As long as it's a wizard. As long as it's a wizard, I forgive it. So I'm very comforted by this articulation of Dumbledore um, and fully convinced that I would have exactly the same sort of childish faith in his management of whatever is going wrong Mm -hmm. as Harry has. Yeah. The one thing I feel like this Dumbledore lacks is in both the book and the movie, it's made very clear that he's supposed to be the only wizard that Voldemort ever feared. And and I don't find this Dumbledore fear-inspiring at all. Yeah. And I know that that's the point. He's supposed to be twinkly-eyed, except when he gets mad. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be terrifying when he gets mad. So I wonder if maybe the idea is kind of like when, like when your grandma, who is always nice to you, suddenly yells at you because you did something mm-hmm. bad and you feel worse than you've ever felt before because drawing on the wall with the crayon was really bad and grandma's yelling at you so bad and so that's why you're upset because the person who is normally the source of gentleness and kindness and cookies Mm -hmm. all of a sudden reminds you that they are the boss yeah i mean it's this amazing disconnect between when you first encounter dumbledore on the card and he's this famous figure known for his sort of um, like militaristic successes, right? That mm-hmm. he's beaten these dark wizards and um, that he's so powerful and that people are sort of speaking of him as the only one that Voldemort feared. And you're expecting like this, you know, sort of armored wizard god and then you encounter him and he's this gentle, sweet, innocuous old grandpa. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of contrast is part of what's so effective about him as a character. And I do feel like this earlier one 
is more convincing in that way than later one is, mm-hmm. right? That he's so, he's so innocuous. But we never got to see him play the Dumbledore who needs to stop being innocuous. So we re- never really got to see how well he would do scary Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Are there any other castings you would like to discuss? Hagrid. Hagrid. Oh, okay. So they make Hagrid a lot smaller for the movie. Oh, yeah. And I get that. I'm on board with that. It's unclear. I mean, the books describe him as, I think, two and a half times the height of the average man. Yeah. Which would make him bananas tall. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, no. We looked this up. We figured that he would be... About we he would be about ten feet tall. I think it's just I think he's supposed yeah. to be just shy of twice the height. Oh ma'am, no, we definitely spent a bunch of time looking up how tall he would be roughly, and then how tall the tallest man ever would have been, and then how tall the tallest man ever looked next to other people. Because we we're trying to figure out if Hagrid could move around in the Muggle world without alarming people. Mm-hmm. And our conclusion was no, he couldn't. Because I think, wasn't the tallest man, the tallest man was something like eight and a half feet tall or something like that. And then Hagrid would have been an additional two feet on top of that. Yeah, yeah. And a picture of the man who is eight and a half feet tall is like, okay, you would not point and stare at that man. But if he was three times the width that he is in that picture. I mean, and, I think and Hag- two feet higher. Yeah, yeah. I think that Hagrid is just too big to be believed. And maybe his bigness is the point in the book's as a sort of emphasis of the fact that Muggles are really good at not seeing anything that challenges their understanding of the world. Especially the British. The British are so good at manufacturing false realities that are like, sustain their prevailing ideologies. CF imperialism. (laughs) Indeed. Zing. Robbie Coltrane is perfectly cast. I want to give him Mm. a hug. I mean, he's very convincing as the gentle giant figure, mm-hmm. right? That he is both sort of lovable in a semi-harmless animalistic way, mm-hmm. right? He's sort of a dog man. Yeah. He's he's represented as being a little stupid, but not yeah. in a pathetic way, yeah. just in a sort of lovable, endearing way. Yeah, like that scene when... Like Ron. Like Ron. Like that scene when Harry is trying to get Hagrid to tell him who Voldemort is. And Hagrid can't yet bring himself to save Voldemort. And so Harry suggests that he spell it. And Hagrid very kind of like, just as a kind of throwaway, is like, nah, I can't spell it. And at no point do you feel like, oh my god, like you're illiterate. Oh my god, how do you manage in the world? That's not the that's not the feeling that is evoked by that. It's more like, oh, okay, well, spelling's not his thing. Yeah. And and he does that, like Robbie Coltrane does that perfectly, right? Yeah. Right? And that yeah. takes a certain amount of I mean, that's charisma, really, mm-hmm. right? It's the fact that he is so sort of charismatic and appealing as a figure that even though he is this outcast, this seemingly powerless um, sort of servant character who's mm-hmm. only semi-literate, um, he's never pathetic. And I think what I think is so is is especially important about that, I think that they had the opportunity in adapting the books into films to play up that idea that without education you are someone who is pathetic which is obviously a false a false idea because different people thrive in different types of environments 
But the situation with Hagrid, which I think is really interesting, and we'll for sure talk about this more in later episodes, but Hagrid was expelled in his third year. So the reason that he lacks education is because he was forbidden from pursuing it. Again, we'll talk about this for sure when we discuss the second book and the second movie, but that's kind of all we know about him at this point is that he was expelled. Dumbledore allowed him to stay on as gamekeeper, and Hagrid has continued to really thrive and be an important, significant person, not just to Hogwarts, but also we know because of his proximity to Dumbledore and to the Potters, an important person in the fight for good against um, against the... Mm -hmm. What, is the, what are the words that I'm looking for? Death um, Eaters. Sure, yeah. The fight for good against the Death Eaters. <laughs> what I love so much about Hagrid is despite the fact that he is huge mm -hmm. and bearded and imposing, that he almost always refuses to perform his masculinity in expected ways. Right? When, when he is raising a dragon from the egg, he refers to himself repeatedly as Norbert's mummy. <laughs> Look, he knows his mummy. His umbrella in the book is pink with polka dots. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, there's very little in the world I love more than men who look traditionally masculine subverting the expectations of behavior affiliated with that appearance. It's wonderful. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm Googling Hagrid umbrella. I think that Warner Brothers could have done a better job making it obviously pink. Okay, yeah, it's for sure pink. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's definitively pink. I right? That's wonderful. Like, there are a lot of items he could have chosen to he hide his wand like in. Like a cane. Lucius fucking Malfoy's wand, which we'll discover later, is like in a walking stick with like yeah. a skull on it or yeah. something. God, I hate Lucius Malfoy. He's the worst. Oh, but he is an elf. I wonder how much overlap casting there is between this and the... Lord of the Rings movies. Well, as I tweeted, every time a new teacher came on screen, our tech support asked if that was Bilbo. When Filch came on screen, he asked if it was Elrond. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So our final segment for today is Madame Malkin's props for all occasions, during which we discuss the aesthetics of the film and basically what we thought was pretty. We, uh, when we went to the Telus exhibit here in Edmonton, we got to see the actual drapes that they used for mm. um, for the the Gryffindor bedrooms, and they're just staggeringly beautiful. I was also really struck by the textiles during that exhibit because you get such a strong sense of how carefully those. Fabrics mm. were chosen to give this world texture. The thing that really struck me was um, the paper and the penmanship, mm -hmm. right? There were parts in the exhibit where they just showed you 
um, stacks of Lockhart's fan mail. Mm -hmm. And it's like they've gone through and they've made sure that everything has actually been written with, I don't know if it's with a quill, but certainly with a fountain pen, Mm -hmm. with different colored ink on these heavy, high quality, beautiful papers, so that everything in this world has texture and weight and richness to it Mm -hmm. in a way that's so appealing, right? The letters from Hogwarts are so much more exciting in the movie than they are in the book because in the movie, Mm -hmm. you can see that green ink and that seal and you can hear the weight of them when they hit the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the sound of all of those letters coming through the various open spaces in the Dursley's house. Oh Oh my gosh, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The book does so many things better. Mm-hmm. And there are things that books do better as a medium. Yeah. One of them is subtlety of characterization. Mm-hmm. One of them is, you know, sort of undermining genre tropes um, in a way that uh, you can sort of sneak in through the cracks of your narrative without mm-hmm. it having to be a really sort of obvious interrogation of the genre. But what movies have in their corner is this sort of visual and aesthetic richness. Mm -hmm. And your entrance into the wizarding world via the movies, I just find so much more exciting. I mean, when you enter Diagon Alley for the first time. Mm -hmm. And you see the bricks moving apart. It doesn't, I'm actually really impressed with the brick moving. It doesn't look CGI in, in ways that a lot of the other parts of the magical world kind of, in the first two movies, they're, they're a little heavy on the CGI and it's, yeah, those, those bricks moving apart are beautifully done. I think if there's any moment you're going to spend the money to make look incredible, it's that moment when that wall opens and you first enter that alley because mm-hmm. that's, that is the key moment. That's when his life changes. Mm-hmm. That's when he steps out of the muggle world and into the wizarding world. And that moment needs to be incredible and it could have been underdone yeah. so easily and they nailed it. Yeah. Reading the books doesn't make me want to be a wizard. Sorry, I don't get to be a wizard because I'm a girl, so I have to be a witch. Mm -hmm. But I want to be a wizard, so fuck that. Reading the books doesn't make me want to be a wizard in the same way that watching the movies does. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the costumes are brilliant. It's the... This is... Like, the CGI being so terrible in these early movies really brings home how much they've relied not on um, sort of screwing around with special effects, but Mm -hmm. just on actually building this world in yeah. reality, right? Yeah. Choosing the fabrics, writing the letters, mm-hmm. carving the wands, oh, yeah. finding the appropriately aged books and piling them book upon book on the shelves. You know, like mm-hmm. you only get that sort of richness and that sense of immersion mm-hmm. when it's real things in a real world. Yeah, for sure. So like the troll is another one of those examples of like a pretty terrible CGI thing. It's kind of this like a little bit too glossy kind of creature and Harry's riding around A little bit on... too glossy just like Snape's hair. Snape's hair is probably also CGI, let's be honest. <laughs> There's no way he, Alan Rickman would have agreed to the Rachel, so he probably had a normal haircut and they just CGI'd in the Rachel. But with the troll, when Harry is riding around on the back of the troll, and it like it looks real enough, but it's not super convincing. However, once the troll is bonked on the head and collapses, and you see like the dust settling around it while the kids are looking at the unconscious troll's body, that looks distinctly real like you can really see all of the texture of the troll it looks like it is an actual physical object unlike the way that it looked when it was you know 
bungling Maybe. about the the bathroom. Well, it may very well have been. I mean, what we learned from that TELUS exhibit is that for all of the CGI'd characters, they built life-size molds mm-hmm. for them, right? They built life-size models so that they could use them for sort of still images and mm-hmm. use them as physical models for when they were doing the CGI, right? Yeah. So the TELUS exhibit had, I think, a life-size model of Ferenz, mm-hmm. um, which was just like magical to look at um and i think one for um the snake oh Oh, one for creature too yeah yeah Yeah. um yeah and so you get a sense of again when those things are physically made Mm -hmm. they look incredible i mean part of me wonders how much of that is because when we were kids growing up we for us it was puppets right so when we saw when we saw fantasy and sci-fi movies that had um non-human characters they were puppets Mm -hmm. and so i wonder if kids growing up on if if the kids who watched the harry potter movie as children who saw the cgi troll i wonder if that for them was just as real looking um as the puppets would have been for us because like obviously if you go back and rewatch, like i don't know like a muppets christmas carol or something like the puppets are still look, real. They're still real, but they look like they look like puppets. Like, of course, they always look like puppets. You never watch Muppets Christmas Carol and we're like, that's a person. Well, no, you wouldn't think that it's a person, but like it's real in a different kind of way. It like yeah. has a kind of believability. You don't have to suspend disbelief. I didn't I don't have to suspend disbelief with puppets in the same way that I find myself suspending disbelief with CGI creatures. Yeah. I mean, yeah. think about Jurassic Park, right? They used yeah. animatronic dinosaurs rather yeah. than using CGI dinosaurs. And I think that's part of why that movie is eight so well because you go back and it's not shitty 90s cgi Mm -hmm. it's animatronics and so yeah they do less with the dinosaurs than they could with contemporary cgi Mm -hmm. they have less like exciting chase scenes um and more just like now it's a tyrannosaurus rex being scary now Mm -hmm. it's a jeep running away um but it hasn't aged it hasn't become absurd over Mm -hmm. time i stand by that jurassic park is a classic Oh. Yeah. Just oh, like yeah. a Muppet's Christmas Carol. Yeah, those are both brilliant movies. But I take your point, which is maybe somebody who grew up on bad CGI would look at a movie with Muppets in it and be like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you ever think that those were yeah. alive? But that person would be wrong because Muppets are real. Yeah. What else? What are the other props? Props and sets and. Props and sets. How about Hogwarts? Is it real? Um... I mean, not Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> well. That you depends how you quick, define real. Quick question. Is, is Hogwarts real? Was it filmed on location? Yeah. We're going to look it up. Yeah, we should look it up. I mean, obviously there are going to be some parts of Hogwarts that are that are a set. Um, like the Great Hall with the enchanted ceiling. Like it's probably really hard to find castles with enchanted ceilings now. That was a really funny joke. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing while at at your joke, and I'm also laughing at what automatically came up as I wrote is Hogwarts in Google. The first thing was real, but the second word second thing was is Hogwarts Express worth it? <laughs> Don't know what that means. Like instead of the milk run to Hogwarts? Don't know how we're measuring our worth. We're embarrassed. Bustle, I trust Bustle. A lot of the exterior shots during the first few movies were done at a real castle called Alnwick Castle, located in Northumberland, UK. Hmm. Has a recorded history of a thousand years. For the past 700, it's been inhabited by the Percy family. (laughs) God. The point is that there is a real castle that Hogwarts was based on. And it's a thousand goddamn years old. It's a thousand goddamn years old. Um, But more importantly, we should go to Warner Brothers Studio 
in Leavesden. Oh, we should go to Universal Studios in Orlando. Uh, I, yeah. I think we need all our listeners to start donating heavily to fund our trips to various Harry Potter theme or locations. I mean, if every listener to this podcast right now donated $5, we would be We'd be able well to afford chips for the next episode. <laughs> Thanks so much, everyone, for listening to episode two of Witch Please. If you haven't already done so, go back and listen to our first episode, The Sorting Ceremony, which you can find on our website, which is O Witch Please, that's O spelled O H, Witch Please, as they sound, dot wordpress.com. You can check out our Twitter at O Witch Please, again, O H W I T C H, please, uh, and our Instagram of the same name. Um, and I'd like to give a special shout out to Jason Purcell, who is a creature of pure wonder and runs our Tumblr, ohwitchplease.tumblr.com, because both Marcel and I are too old to understand how Tumblr works. This is 100% true. Special thanks also to our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser. And extra special thanks to the people who have listened to the podcast and tweeted at us about it. Emily Hoven, Crush Slut, Cat Lady Pizza, Khaleesi's and Amazons, Matthew Domville, Shane Arbuthnot, Catherine Maloche, Brent Bellamy, Karina M., Andrew Bretz, Caitlin T., and the Edmonton Oars Quidditch Club. At this point, this is where we would use our very catchy sign-off line, if we had one. We don't have one yet. We are searching for a sign-off, and we would love to hear your suggestions. We have decided that we are going to have a sign-off competition, which means you suggest things to us until we find one we like, and then we give you a prize. Do you want to know what the prize is? I I definitely do. It's definitely not written down in front of me. Heck no. The winner will be determined arbitrarily and with much bias by us. So I just want to put that out there ahead of time. But we've agreed that the winner will get to guest star on an episode of Which Please? And it will be of your choosing. So if there's a particular book or movie that you want to talk about, you can do that. Just come up with the perfect sign-off for us. We will even accept proposals of additional episodes for example if you would like to play say the harry potter lego video game with us for an episode that sounds like something super fun that we might do it sounds like a great idea maybe you would like to pay for all of us to go to orlando florida and visit the harry potter wizarding world no weird sex stuff no well maybe a little it depends yeah how expensive those plane tickets are how magical you are (laughs) So, if you've got any ideas for a sign-off, we would love to hear them. And until then, in lieu of an actual exciting, whimsical sign-off, we will just say, Have a magical week! That's a pretty good sign-off, but... No, it's not. It's not. You're not going to win with that. No.